We advertise Jesus as the one who can give us a happy, meaningful life. But what about the rest of the story? If we fail to tell that Jesus leads us into some intensely hot water before we arrive safely home, we simply haven't told the truth about the historical, biblical Jesus. What does the Battle of Gethsemane teach us about real life, how to make it through temptation, and who wins in the end? Several years ago, right here in this auditorium, uh, we had a time of great testing, great challenge. We had just found out that Debbie Baxter, one of our young mothers with Devin and Philip, they're two young kids, and, uh, and uh, uh, Kevin, her husband, that was on pins and needles, and we brought them right up here in front of the church because on that next day, Debbie was going to go into the hospital, and it was back in the early days of marrow transplant for leukemia treatment. And all of us have heard the words leukemia from the time we've been just little kids. Leukemia means like a death sentence. It's a homegoing illness. It's a, a really scary thing. But we heard about these treatments where they would do this intricate procedures, and we had a bone marrow transplant donor that could give the precious cells that Debbie needed. We all brought Debbie up here and Kevin up here in the family. We anointed Debbie with oil and then we all prayed for many weeks. I remember going to visit Debbie in the hospital. It was like going to visit somebody in total isolation, kind of like uh, a NASA project or something. I had to put a mask over your face and everything and you really couldn't get in there to see Debbie because all of her immune system was destroyed. Then they replaced with this bone marrow transplant and we all prayed because the percentages really weren't that great that it would work. And yet, a few weeks later, it did work, and it worked for many, many years, and we were just all rejoicing, and, and in our church family, you know, we have some real milestones of victories, and where we've really seen eruptions of the kingdom of God, and Debbie Baxter is definitely one of them. Debbie was in a time of great challenge, a time of great testing, and it's like I mentioned, as we think about the passion of Jesus... Most of us have to go through passions. Most of us have to go through times of testing. Most of us face great challenges, and they're just thrust upon us. Many of you are going through really hard times. Uh, you know, we just sang, we're happy all the day, but some of you haven't been happy all the day. It's been a rough week. Some of you say, well, Dave, I came this morning because I just need to receive strength. I, I don't know how I'm going to get through another day. I don't know how I can make it. And... One of the things that, that we need to really begin to understand together as American believers is that as followers of Jesus, we're going to face Gethsemanes. We're going to face hard times. I think one of the biggest lies that we communicate to believers is that if you come to Jesus and receive Jesus in your heart, that you're going to be happy all the day, every day of your life. You're not going to face testings. You're not going to face struggles. All of it's been totally taken care of by Jesus. And there's elements of truth in that because all of your sins were taken care of. And Jesus has won the victory. But the scripture also teaches us that he learned obedience through the things he suffered. And, and, it, and it also tells us that we're going to learn obedience through the things that we suffer. How many of you have ever faced some hard times? How many of you have ever saw something coming and it just scared the willy out of you? Just really scared you. Anybody ever gone through that? How many of you ever knew that something was coming and you just didn't want to go? I mean, anything, just to get away from it. Okay, so we're going to really relate today. We're going to start out today with the top ten. I'm going to give you the ten. The big ten, the top ten. I want to give you ten reasons why Jesus should not have gone to the cross, okay? Number ten, because you can't trust even your best friends. Number ten. Number nine, 
Because if God is in control of everything, then why do such terrible things happen? Number eight. Because God's children, the reason Jesus should not have gone to the cross is because God's children proved to be overconfident, deceptive. They're not much different than unbelievers. Number seven. Because even your closest friends won't stay awake and pray for you when you need their support the most. Number six. Because God makes a lousy father. His plans for his children often appear to be cruel and vindictive instead of loving and supportive. Number five, because good people have to face such intense times of testing and temptation. Number four, because in the end, human beings are so weak and frail. Number three, because God doesn't answer our prayers the way we want him to. Number two, because sinners have the power and they get the results they want. And number one, because money, deception, and living to meet your own desires win in the real world. Those are ten reasons why... Jesus should not have gone to the cross. You live in a culture that totally rejects what Jesus did in going to the Passion. Because you live in a culture, I can illustrate it, advertising, advertising appeals to what's going on in our culture. You know, advertisers pay really big bucks. For example, like Home Depot figures out, you know, spends millions of dollars to figure out where they need to build the next rectangular box. And then Lowe comes in right across the street because Home Depot paid for all the research. Advertisers do that even more aggressively probably than merchandising stores like that. Advertisers have to figure out what you're into, what motivates you, what drives you. So I just casually went through a magazine, went through Time Magazine, and these are some of the things that I saw. Warm, familiar, a place where you'll be well taken care of and comfortable. The perfect place to rediscover yourself. Blur the line between the office and the beach. Now, these advertisers are not exactly appealing to your sense of sacrifice, and you need to be willing to give up yourself. What are they appealing to? They're saying you deserve it. You know, you've got to live. You've got to have your desires met. And one of the things I want you to, to be thinking of as we move towards Easter this year and Good Friday is you live in a culture that really believes that God, small g, is you. Your desires, what you want. And you're right now this morning. Some of you are looking at hard times. Some of you, your marriage is a Gethsemane. It's a disaster. It's hard, really hard. And so there's voices inside of you that say it's too hard. It's too much of a struggle. And there's all kinds of voices that tell you because it's hard, because it's a struggle, you need to end it. Some of you have had your marriage end. Because your partner walked away from you or because of maybe unfaithless on your part. And now you're trying to come back to the Lord and trying to walk closely with the Lord. But you feel like, you know, that, that it just isn't worth it. I try to do all this stuff for God. Look what it got me. Why am I back in this hard time? You know, Lord, why did you partially answer prayer? What's going on? In fact, every one of you this morning, myself included, when I hear that my first granddaughter has rep, I can feel like, God doesn't come through. He's a lousy daddy. I don't like what his will is. So can you. So that's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about what's driving you today and what's pushing you. And what Jesus gives you a chance to do in the gospel narratives, as you turn to Matthew, let's turn there to Matthew, because Jesus lets us get up close and personal with what's going on in his life. We look at Matthew chapter 26, verse 31. And when you read these narratives, don't read them as someone distant from you, that someone that doesn't understand what you're going through. Put yourself imaginatively right in the story. 
They've just sung a hymn according to Matthew's chronology. We know from some of the other gospels that uh, Jesus actually made this prediction in the flow of the supper, really near the end of the supper. But Matthew wants to start to give you the feel that we're moving towards the Garden of Gethsemane. And we're going to be moving with the Lord Jesus through that. And so Matthew almost gives you the impression it's as they're walking out that Jesus says in verse 31, then Jesus told them, told the disciples, this very night, Matthew emphasizes, this very night you will fall away on economy, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And after that I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. The very first thing I want you to see is that Jesus' life is about obedience to God's word. Jesus is making an incredible statement. He's saying, this very night a prophecy is going to be fulfilled. The book of Zechariah, chapter 13, tells a story. In fact, Zechariah 9 through 13 tells a lot of accounts that deal with uh, predictions of what's going to happen to the Messiah. In fact, in Zechariah, there are two shepherds. One of them is a shepherd that is unfaithful. He beats up on the sheep. He's vindictive to the sheep. And he's a shepherd that should be judged. There's another shepherd that is a faithful worshiper of God and is a, is a tender shepherd that cares for his sheep. In John's gospel, John makes a big thrust upon Jesus is the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Zechariah contrasts. Where did that imagery come from? It comes from the Psalms. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want it. It also comes from Zechariah. And Zechariah presents this idea of two shepherds, but there's a very strange verse. In Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, we have this quote, I will strike the shepherd, and in the Hebrew text it has the sword will strike the shepherd, but it's obvious behind the text of Zechariah that God is the one that's wielding the sword. And so Jesus makes it explicit in his quotation that God, Yahweh, says, the Lord God himself says, I will strike the shepherd. And when I strike the shepherd, the sheep are going to be scattered. That's what happens when you strike a shepherd. If a shepherd's taken out, then the sheep just scattered to the hillsides. What Jesus is saying that it stands written in God's word. One of the things that you're going to decide in your life, whether you believe that there's a God that's controlling things, there's a God that's running the story, whether there's a God that's behind it all, whether there's a God that can predict the future. There's a big debate in evangelicalism, even today, about whether or not God actually does know what's going to happen in the future. And this is one of those texts that makes it really clear. Yes, he does. In fact, if you want to make it very explicit, Jesus is telling you, I know what's going to happen this night. And you can say, well, they're just making a good guess. No, it was a lot more, according to Matthew's testimony, than a good guess. He says, this very night, what Zechariah wrote 400 years ago is now going to happen. I'm the shepherd, Jesus is saying, of my small band of sheep. And I'm going to be struck down and my sheep are going to be scattered, which is exactly what's going to happen when the Jewish high priest, the soldiers arrive, when Judas betrays them, Peter makes an attempt to try to defend the Lord, which blows everything, and then they all turn tailed and run. One of them just lets his jacket be torn off. They all split, just exactly like this text says. So Jesus is saying, I know my Father's word, I know his will, and it involves him striking the sheep. So what it's saying is, not that God immediately is going to be the one that does the striking, but he's saying God will ultimately take responsibility. He is sovereignly in control of these events. Very strong. Our culture does not like sovereignty at all. 
We don't like the idea that there's a God that's bigger than us and actually controls us. The whole major thing, you see it in movies all the time, you're, everything you read says you decide what's going to happen. You decide everything. And you can make up your own will. Well, I got news for you, you can't. You're not God. And what this text is telling us is that God in his word is in control of history, so much so that he can write 400 years ahead of time, my son, I'm going to strike him. And all the sheep are going to be scattered. Now, if I was a son of God at this point, I would say, bad plan. I don't like it. How about you? I mean, how many of you like a daddy in heaven that's in control of things, and he, you know, he's got a plan, and he tells you, you know, you're going to get struck down. And all of your best friends, all of your intimate associates, how many of you like it when all your friends turn tail and run, right in when you need them? Isn't that a great scenario? And some of you have decided, I'm really not going to obey God because I don't like what his plan is. I don't like what he does. And you're going to turn into darkness. You're going to turn into evil because you're not going to learn the pathway of obedience. Sometimes obedience involves knowing the Father's will and it's going to be really, really tough. And one thing I want to share with you, you can turn away and say you're angry with God and I want to rebel against God. It's not going to make the hard times go away because every single one of you are going to face hard times no matter who you choose to follow. But if you walk with Jesus and you're obedient to the Father, you're going to find out as we go through this text, you'll know how it's going to come out at the other end and it's really great at the other end. But if you choose to duck and disobey because you're going to do your own thing because you don't like the plan, then you're going to miss it and you'll, and you'll be like, that's the contrast. Judas chooses his own plan. Judas chooses his own way, and you're going to know how the story develops and how that ends up. That's what Matthew wants you to see in this text. So the very first thing I want you to see in verses 31 and 32, it's about obedience in our life. It's about obedience. The Holy Spirit wants David, and he wants you to learn, when I know that it's going to be hard, if I obey the Lord, and it doesn't seem like it's going to work out, I need to still obey some of the high school kids, when they obey Jesus and they're really consistent with his word, and like we've been learning in Ephesians, we're not supposed to get drunk, and we're not supposed to be immoral, and we're not supposed to use dirty language and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of our teenagers, they decide, yeah, I, that's what I want to do. What happens the next week at school? Some of their best friends leave. Some of their best friends abandon them. Some of their best friends tease them to death. It happened to some of you as an adult in your offices. You know, you choose, I'm going to be obedient to God's word. And all the, you know, the, the major leaders that are up above you, they that had the influence, you used to go to the bars and you used to do a lot of things with them and that gave you an inside track with them. And now that's all been cut off and it's really cost you. It's cost you a lot. One of my best friends uh, back in seminary went to the Air Force Academy in his younger days and became a professor there. And because he was obedient to God, for example, like one of the things he found out that a bunch of the Air Force cadets were cheating. It's totally against the code of the Air Force to cheat at the Air Force Academy. And my friend was one of the major ones that had to blow the whistle on that. It ended his career in the Air Force. Because he, he let down, you know, the way, the way that bureaucracies work. You know, yeah, we need to take action, but man, the guy that brought all this out in the open, watch out. That's when it gets tough, when you know that God's will is taking you to a time of suffering, a time of pain, a time of real testing. And especially when you know, well, the Father knew this was coming. Why didn't he do something about it? And I want you to see that all those tensions are right here 
in the battle of Olivet Hill, in the battle of Gethsemane, Jesus knows what it's like to know what the will of his daddy is, to know what's coming, and to know it's going to be really, really hard. The next thing that's brought out here is it says, uh, I want you to see verse 33, which is very important. It says, but after, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And that's the ultimate end of the story. One of the things I want you to know is that Jesus knew from the very beginning as he went into the valley of death and as he goes into the passion, he knows when he comes out the other side of that valley, it's a resurrection time. And that's why you need to follow Jesus. Because I'm telling you the truth. If you follow Jesus, you will go through times of strike down, times of real trauma. But with Jesus, you end up with a resurrection. If you listen to the lie to the evil one, you'll have pleasure, you'll have relative satisfaction, you might duck a lot of hard times, but eventually it's going to be death. No resurrection time as far as life with God eternally. So it's very important to understand what the decisions are. The next major thing that comes up is look at Peter. Peter reacts the way you would expect Peter to react. It says, Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I just love, don't you love Peter? Confident. Aggressive, you know, all of you would hire Peter. He was great in interviews. He always knew how to do everything. You think you can do this? Yeah. You've all heard the stories. You know, I've told them myself. You know, the guy that's going to get ahead and came out with the poor guy and he ends up with a job interview. They ask him, you think you can do this? And yeah, yeah, I think I can do it. That's the way Peter was. That's a part of our life today. As Americans, that's a major part of our life. Some of you are saying, man, I can do this. I got confidence. I got power. When I used to train guys to sell books, men and women to sell books, man, we didn't tell them, you know, you can't do this, you're allowed, there's no way you're going to make it, you know, you need to be humble. No, we said, no, you can go and sell Mrs. Jones, you can really meet Mrs. Smith's needs, and you can do this. And man, we'd have a thousand kids, college students, you know, standing up on their chairs and pounding their chest like gorillas and everything. We can do it, we can do it. Some of you that are in sales know what I'm talking about. What I want to share with you is that your self-confidence can go a long way in selling books. It's going to go zero in walking with the Lord in discipleship. And it's taken the Lord a long time. He's still teaching me that. I'm arrogant. I'm confident. It's taken me a long time to learn to not say, yeah, Peter, come on, we can do this. But a lot of motivation I hear in the American church today is Peter. We got to figure it out. Everyone else might fall, but we're not going to fall because we can do it. Come on, Lord, with my help, you can really do great things. Look what Peter says. Well, look what Jesus says. I tell you the truth, Peter. This very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I die with you, push it even further, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same thing. I love the fact that Peter catches all the flack for this. But all the other disciples join in. Yeah, we're going to die for you. We'll even die for you. It's not about overconfidence and pride. Brothers and sisters, some of you that are here today are saying, I can't do this. I can't live this Christian life, and I, I'm not sure that the Lord can use me. And I just want to be humble before the Lord. Lord, if anything's going to happen, you're going to have to do it. That's the attitude that we need to have. And I want you to see the contrast with Peter. One of the hardest things to learn in the Christian life is that when you're weak, that's when you're strong. In fact, some of us are just scared to death of weakness. Some of us are really afraid to come to the zero point. In fact, one of the things that happens in our culture, we want to be really careful not to come to Gethsemane's like Jesus is going to come to. 
In fact, there's some of you that, that, you know, that need to take medication because there really are chemical imbalances in your body. And I want you to know that your body, the unity of your physical and your emotions and your spiritual. And when there are chemical imbalances, it's really important to uh, be sure to, to take the medication. The Lord has graciously given us. But I want to share about another side. Some of us as Americans, the major thing is we don't want to have any pain. We don't want to have any zero point. We always want to be in control. We want to stay totally level. And I want to share with you, it's totally contrary to what you're usually here. You need to learn to have dark, dark moments. And you also need to learn to have really high, high light moments. And as Americans, you are scared to death of those. And I'm one of you. What we try to do is we try to maintain everything. We pride ourselves in that we're even. In fact, some of you that are, some of you are up and up and down, and you're up and down because you need to be on medication. But when something really bad happens, one of the really dangers of our audience today, if something really bad happens, nothing happens. You don't respond. You don't react. If something really, really good happens, you don't respond. Because everything is like this, because you've been hit by so many images, so many things that are happening, that you're losing that sensitivity. As we walk with the Lord Jesus, Jesus is going to show us how we really live, how we should really live. Something bad is really about to happen. And Peter's responding with overconfidence. And Jesus warns them about what's coming. He even tells them this very night, before the cock crows twice, which in the Roman time was before sunrise. The Romans even called the wee hours of the night, like from 12 to early in the morning. That was the cock crow watch that they had to be on. And Jesus is telling Peter, this very night, you're going to betray me. You're going to fail. What should have Peter's response to that been? It should have been, boy, Lord, help me. Protect me. He should have prayed. Let's see what he did do. It says that then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. They went down through the Kidron Valley across what a, a small brook there. It started walking up the Mount of Olives. And uh, there's olive growth there. It says, sit here. And in Gethsemane, which means the olive press, it was a place we know. Judas knows where it is because we know from some of the other Gospels that Jesus often came there. Look what Jesus said. He said, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful. And trouble. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch from, for, with me. Keep watch with me. What I want you to see, we learn from these verses that it's about intense, wide awake prayer. Jesus stepped a little bit further. Going a little bit far, farther, he fell on his face and he prayed. My Father, notice the intimacy, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will but as you will. Here we have Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's wide awake. He's intense. And he's flat on his face before his Father. When this is the Lord Jesus' example, he has intimacy with his Father. He's, he's honest about his emotions. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Tells his friend that he wants him to stay here and keep watch with him. And what he does is he pours out himself to his Father. I want you to look at what he says. First of all, he's got a vertical relationship that's intensely personal. My Father. And you have, if you've received Jesus as your Savior, you have an intense relationship. You can pray with that same intimacy, with that same closeness. 
You can call God your father. Notice Jesus knows what's coming, but he's staying vertically connected. The next part, he says, if it's possible, may this cup be taken away from me. It's about honest emotions, not pious platitudes in prayer. It's really, really important. One of the things that I think that a lot of us do in our prayer, in fact, I, I've even argued this passage, and it's a very difficult passage. To be honest with you, in theology, there's a lot to debate about this passage. As I think about those debates over the years that I've had, I think a lot of times the debates have to do with that everything fits into nice little boxes. Now, if I can get everything put into a box and everything fits the formula, it will be all right. And that's not what's happening. It's not what happens in real life. It's not what's happening in this context. They say, well, how could Jesus ever mean if it's possible for this cup to pass from me? What I believe that, that Matthew's expressing to us is, as probably Jesus shared with them later, what happened, or share with Mark, and they, they put it together to figure out what Jesus prayed in the garden, is that Jesus was overwhelmed. Remember what I just told you about we're afraid to be overwhelmed? We're afraid to hit this bottom part of sorrowing? And I'm really speaking to myself. My response to a time when I know that hard times are coming, what I do is I steal myself. Like when I knew, like when I knew that Mary was going to go in for that test, and I know that a time of trial is coming, I harden myself to that. I say it's not a big deal. It's no big deal. In fact, Mary and I even hurt some of you because we kept it away. And I'm sorry, you need to forgive us because I'm arrogant. Why don't we do that? Because it's easy. When I go and pray for you, then I'm in the power position. At least you think you are. And I'm the pastor. And I'm the one that prays for you, but I don't need your prayers for me. That's a wrong attitude. That's arrogant. Some of you in your own heart, really tough things are happening. But you don't want anybody to know. And I want you to know, I know how you feel because that's what I do. And also, if you ask me, are you doing okay? I'll say, yeah, I'm doing fine. And to be honest with you, externally, I am. Because what's happening, you see, like, you know, angiograms and angioplasty and heart problems and even being in the emergency room when Bobby died, to be honest with you, that's not really exceptional events. It's terrible. But in my life, it's really not just a big exceptional event. I've often been in the emergency room. I've often been there when the family finds out tough things. I'm often there when I watch the procedures done. So one of the ways I respond to is like a good Roman, a good Roman stoic. That's what Roman Stoics do. They said, we can handle it. And we shelve all the emotions. We hold it all in. And what we do in our Christian circles is we say, I'm okay. Because I'm tough. Because I'm trusting Jesus. And we don't cry. We don't have sorrow unto death. And it's one of the things, and you know, and then, you know, I want to share with you what happens then. About a year later, because we don't have emotions and we don't let it out, then a year later we have heart attacks. That's the way it happens, because your body's made to be expressive. Your body's made, and you're all going to do this different ways, but I'm really speaking to you, because some of you that have, you know, you're Germans, and we don't ever know what's going on inside. We look at your face, oh yeah, everything is really great. You don't even tell us that, you know, we, you just everything, just, you're going. And I want to ask you a question today. What was your Lord like? Don't you want to be like your Lord? Jesus didn't tell the disciples, we're going to the cross, got to do it, got to be done. I know I'm going to get beat with whips. No, they're going to put nails right through the tough part of my wrist here where it'll hold me up. But we can handle it. Got to be tough. It's the Father's will. It's determined. 
We're going to go it. We're going to go. We all do this together now. That's a good American way. That's the way American heroes go. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus came apart in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was troubled. Some of the texts say he was troubled even unto death. And I want you to pray for me because as I grow older in the pastors, one of my prayers, dear Lord Jesus, I don't want to become a hardened, cynical pastor. And some of my friends are becoming hardened, cynical pastors. They don't ever respond to anything. They don't cry. They don't laugh. And that's not what Jesus is calling to. My Savior is calling to me. If I'm facing a really bad thing that's coming, when I find out that one of you, one of that's really close to me, is really sick, it's okay to cry. At a funeral, it's okay to cry. For your own health, you're going through really hard times and you're holding everything in. And it's because you're afraid. You're afraid if you let go. Like you say, Dave, why don't you cry? Because I'm afraid if I really cry, I'll just come totally unglued, right? And I don't want to be vulnerable like that. I don't want to be unglued. I don't want to lose that. So I stay in control. Now, Jesus learned the place where you come apart. Like, I can't come apart when I'm doing your funeral. Where I can't finish it. That's not, that public time is not the time. In fact, that would be really not being a good servant to the family. So where do you come apart? Where Jesus came apart? With his daddy. You need to learn to come apart in prayer. Believers today need to learn how to come apart. Let it come unraveled in prayer. And some of us are really afraid to just let all that emotion, let the tears flow. You ladies actually do much better at this than us men, for the most part. But you need to learn what Jesus is doing here. Alone with his father, separated from his disciples, he just lets the sorrow come. And what he's expressing here when he says, if it's possible, my soul's overwhelmed, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken away from me. He's expressing emotions. He knows it's been he and his father's plan from the very beginning. He knows that. So it's not like he's praying, Lord, let's change scripture, let's change what Genesis 3.15 say, I'm not going to have to go to die. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is praying his heart in his emotions, his feelings. And any human being facing what he's about to face is going to have a tremendous emotions. I can't do this. And that's what Jesus has the freedom to express to his father. This is many times what happens in the Psalms. Many times the writer of the Psalms, often it's David. Jesus was the son of David. David often just prays very intense, honest emotion. And in evangelicalism, we're scared to death of our feelings. Some of you have been taught... From the time you were little, remember, now your salvation is not dependent upon your feelings. That's right. It's not. It's dependent upon the word of God. But that doesn't mean that you don't have feelings. And it doesn't mean you can't express your feelings. It doesn't mean that you can't talk to God about your feelings. I believe Jesus is pouring out what any human being, one of the things we're learning here, Jesus is the son of God, but he's also the son of man. He's fully human, just like us. So what he has is this intimate relationship, my father. He honestly expresses his feelings to his father. And then we have obedience. He says, but not my will, but your will be done. And that's the difference. Now, how would his friends respond? Jesus goes back in the text. It says, Jesus returned with his disciples and found them all sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, watch and pray. Stay awake. Be alert so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit's willing, but the body's weak. That's our problem today. 
He went away a second at time and he said, my father, if it's possible, same deal. This cup be taken away from me unless I drink it. May your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near. And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go here. The betrayer is at hand. The thing that just blows me away about this is here's Jesus honestly expressing his emotions. Pouring in his heart to the Father. He's fully obedient. And one of the things that I really need when I'm going through a time of testing, and I have had people that will talk to me and, and will, will say, how's it going? And let me pray for you. Don't you ever feel that the Lord moves you to say, Dave, I want to pray for you. I don't want you to pray for me. I want to pray for you. Go ahead and do that. Tim said to me, like when Mary came out before she went into surgery, she said, I mean, it's a little bit hard, you know, to pray for my senior pastor. I don't even like that language. But Tim said something really important. He says, but I'm going to pray. And that's what he needs to do. He needs to pastor me in that context. And I need to be willing to receive that. That's the way we're going to have real relationship. This is one thing Jesus is saying. Pray with me. The Son of God was asking his friends, pray with me. Now, I want to share with you as we close here today, one of the biggest things that's going to knock you out of following God is when your friends don't come through. How many of you have ever felt in your life, I'm not going to keep following Jesus anymore because my friends didn't show up? It's going to be one of the biggest temptations. In fact, that's one of the number one reasons why some people are not fellowshipping with God's people today that are, that are out there in their homes today reading the Dallas Morning News. If you ask a whole lot of them, they'll say, I tried this Jesus thing, this God thing, right when I needed him the most, he didn't show up and my friend didn't show up. Now, the Son of God could have decided that himself. And I'm very serious when we close today. This is going to be one of the biggest hits against you. One of the things when you go through the valley of the sorrow of death, when you go through Gethsemane, there's an aloneness. The book of Proverbs says that, there's a, that only the heart knows a time of sorrow. And I want to share with you, even if your friends stay awake, even if your friends pray with you, every human heart, when we go through times of intense testing, there's times of aloneness where there's nobody there. They don't understand. They don't get it. It's just the way to defend it. It's one of the ways we feel when we go through times of really bad sorrow. In this case, Jesus, the disciples weren't there. They were sleeping. Peter, the guy that just said, I'll go to die for you. All Jesus said is, just pray with me. And he fell asleep. Couldn't even do that. And that's why he failed in the next few minutes. Because he wasn't awake. He wasn't praying. But if I were the son of God, one of the big things I feel at this point, why should I save these guys? They're my friends. And as I think back over my own life, one of the things that would have tempted me and could tempt me to turn away is when my friends don't come through for me one of the most powerful things in your life when you feel like you really needed your friends. People that you really counted on and they weren't there. And what I want you to learn from today is Jesus had friends. His closest friends, Peter, James, and John are supposed to be just a little bit away from him. Supposed to be covering him in prayer and they're asleep. But that didn't make Jesus turn away and I don't want you to turn away either. Why not? Because you've got to walk with Jesus all the way. You've got to be able to walk through those top ten things of why Jesus shouldn't do it. And what I'd like you to do this week is I'd like you to take those top ten things and I'd like you to read them and I'd like you to think back over your own life and I'd like you to think about when were you tempted not to keep walking with Jesus? When were you tempted not to suffer because of Jesus? When were you tempted to quit on him? 
Look at those 10 things and, you'll, and, you, and put in some specific illustrations in your own life. I tried to give you an idea of how I do that in my own life. Why do I want you to follow Jesus? Remember what I told you. Jesus said, when I rise again from the dead, I'm going to go before you to Galilee. Jesus is going to get home to Galilee, which is their home territory before the disciples do. And as we leave here today, brothers and sisters, that's why I want to keep following Jesus. Because he has already gone home before us. He's already made the biggest journey. He's already died, and he rose again from the dead. And no matter how hot it gets in this life, I'm going to keep hold of Jesus here. Because he's the one, he's the only one in all the universe that I know that if you hold his hand, when you eventually get through the fire, you come out with resurrection glory.